In 165 A.D., there was a tremendous epidemic that swept through the Roman Empire. In fact, the epidemic, uh, they were uncertain what it was. Some believe that it might have been smallpox. But it was so devastating that uh, they say that one-third, maybe a quarter to one-third of the whole Roman Empire died during that season of time. In fact, it was another century later when another epidemic spread throughout the whole Roman Empire. And uh, at the height of that epidemic, they say that 500 people per day were dying in the city of Rome alone. Now, what would you do if that kind of epidemic started to happen? Well, people took off. They fled. They became scared. So they, they ran from the cities. And they ran to the countrysides. And those who had estates bunkered in there until... All the devastation was over. But there was one group of people that did not get scared. You have friends, family, people dying all around you. These individuals purposefully stayed in the cities, helping with the sick and the dying, even if it was no other help than to give them a decent burial. See, everybody had fled from the pagan priest to the philosophers of the day, they were powerless to do anything about the epidemic and what was happening. But these people stayed behind. These people went beyond their family and tribes and extended love and care to all kinds of people. These people were a special group of people. They were known as Christians. And many of them served to a point of even dying themselves as they stayed behind. In fact, the bishop of Alexandria, Dionysius, says this. He said, Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. Many, in nursing and curing others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. Death in this form seems in every way the equal of martyrdom. That was said after the second epidemic. You know, people talk about how did Christianity spread throughout the known world? How did it go from, as we mentioned, the um, diagram from the last couple of weeks of the different spotted cities around the Mediterranean? How did it go from there to spread around the known world at that time? Well, I'll give you a clue. It wasn't just because the emperor of Rome, Constantine, decided in 312 to make you know, himself a Christian, so-called, maybe, and, and declare it the state religion rather than uh, torturing Christians, which had happened up to that time. They say it was almost a groundswell that it was happening amongst the ranks because what would happen if people fled to the countryside and the Christians stayed behind? You were losing numbers. People were dying, but yet at the same time, some people were getting well. And those people were seeing evident before them sacrificial love and caring. Many of those who became well became Christians. And so there was this groundswell movement of love and care taking place so that it went from these little pockets of Christians and oikoses in these different areas like we've talked about to spreading all around the known world at that time. And so you have this diagram next that shows where places were Christianized as it moved. 
This did not happen by chance. It happened by the power of the Holy Spirit and people giving witness. But the way that they gave witness was through the sacrificial love and care that they gave one to another. And I think for us, as we come back and really focus on what God is calling us to do as a body of people, it would behoove us to go back and say, okay, how does this thing work? Mother Teresa says this, do not do great things, but do small things with great love. Do not seek to do great things, but do small things with great love. And there is not one person in here this morning, myself included, who cannot do small things with great love to make a greater impact long term for the kingdom of God and for his glory. And so I have a simple challenge to you today. Will you come together as a vibrant, fresh community, weekend and week out, day by day, serving, living before the God that we love, doing small things with great love and in that way making a great impact long term. But we have a very uh, myopic world that we live in, narcissistic, if you will. Remember what narcissism is, the guy who fell in love with his reflection in the pool, right? We are forced through our culture to be very self-centered kinds of people. And that isn't always an ugly thing. It's a necessity of life. And so we do what we want to do. And what we want to do is sustain our own livelihood, take care of our own immediate family, and we want to enjoy life. Nothing wrong with that, but we are pressed into a very individualistic culture versus what Christianity is, is a very communal culture. And so we have to force back against that tide of influence that says, just go do your own little thing in your own little world. The Christians of the early days, they chose to take the commands of Christ and run with it. And so we've been talking the last couple of weeks about how to be missional communities of Christ, how to be obedient to the, uh, the word in Romans where it says for us to um, be feet be messengers of the good news. And how do we go about being missional communities of Christ in the Temecula Valley? We looked at the three aspects of what a missional community of Christ needs to be. It needs to be focused around the spirit of Jesus himself, who is the fire, who is the life within us. But there needs to be passionate spirituality, radical community, and missionary zeal. And today we're taking number two, which is radical community. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear the word radical, I want to go, ah, right? Ah, radical! Those people that stayed behind during those epidemics and just cared for people unto death, that's radical. They didn't run for their own protection. They ran into harm's way. It's like firemen. It's like, that's nuts to run into a burning building. Radical does not have to be all hyped up, amped up, big yelling, big, big things. It's that whole idea of doing small things with great love. And they're around us at every little turn. And if you and I devote ourselves to that type of radical community of loving one another, we will see great things happen. But in American culture, we like the big show. We like the big deal. Looky there, wow! Big pastor, big church, right? Big event we pulled off, woo! And all, there's nothing wrong with that. But my question is, 
Could it not be more valuable for us just to have a long, uh, long obedience in the same direction? It's a phrase I've heard. That we just stay consistent day in and day out with a radical commitment to community to do small things with great love. And in that, we will have a contagious community that will win many to be followers of Christ. It's said that the spread of Christianity may not have been because we finally got the top dog who stopped persecuting Christians, but he almost was forced to change the rules about Christianity because of the love that was being exuberated by the communities of Christ at that known time. And he wasn't dumb. So Constantine said, hey, Christianity, that's the way we need to go. Now what happened with Constantine? After he established Christianity as the religion of the Roman Empire, if you will, it became institutionalized. And many people say that was the downfall of Christianity. Because then they didn't have the opposition, the persecution. They weren't on the fringes. They were somehow brought into the middle. And then all the big temples and, and the church buildings, different kinds of things started to roll through the, uh, not only the decades, but the centuries. And so what we have today is people come to buildings institutions. We go to church. But that was not the mindset of those early followers of Jesus. They were the church. The church was not a building. In fact, I was thinking this way because we're this week because we're doing some renovations, right? We're don't walk through that door back there. It's a mess. We're trying to open up an area where we can have community before church a little bit more and fellowship, coffee area, that kind of thing and, and stuff. We're going to be knocking a couple walls down here and redoing the stage and stuff and all that's cool. But <clears throat> What if we were told this week that our lease was no good for either one of these big buildings we have? What would happen to this church? Like, what if they said, oops, they're contaminated and you can't use these buildings for six months? What would we do next week? Oh my goodness, would Chorus Church exist? We need to get together somewhere. Yeah, it'd be fine. Let's get together maybe somewhere, but maybe a park. But what if we were forced away from having, not having a large central institutional gathering, but we just had to be the presence and the feet of Christ out amongst people, day in and day out, doing small things with great love. We looked at this passage in Acts the last couple of weeks, and I gave reference to the latter part of Acts. I'm going to give reference to the front part of this passage in Acts 2.42, that is. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe. Many wonders, miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to everyone as he had need. And we described this as they came together from household to household with the word, the Greek word oikos. And the Greek word oikos means households or extended families with a purpose or on a mission. In fact, you guys are starting to pick up the word oikos around here in the last couple of weeks. I like that. I was at a uh, um, connections team party uh, at uh, 
uh, Eric and Regine's yesterday, and I thought, well, here's a nice oikos. These people are serving together with the Connections team, the greeting ministry, and that kind of thing. And I've gone to different small groups, and I think here's a nice oikos. And, and I even saw some ladies and some kids do this running thing on Mondays, a hiking thing sometimes, and they send put pictures in a Facebook. And I thought, Michelle Rustin, I think, is ahead of that. And I'm like, there's an oikos of people that went out hiking today. I mean, whenever you see people in relationships coming together and loving and serving and encouraging one another, all right, you have oikos. And that's an okay word. Just be careful when you use it to people who haven't been a part of Sunday morning services. They might think you're a little weird. Are you oinking or what are you doing, right? Oikos were households. And when they gathered, they did these things. And the hard thing there, of course, is number is in verse 45, selling their possessions and goods they gave to everyone as they had need. And if you look two chapters later in chapter 4, you seem to see the same kind of thing. And they are giving away their monetary wealth and encouraging one another. Now, I don't know what your baseline is for really loving people, but when you start giving away your stuff, you're getting closer. Okay? Because we're very possessive. But they said, whatever it takes, and those people back taking care of the people with the epidemics, or later on from this season of time, they were giving away their very lives if they took on the disease themselves and died. There is always, I believe, deeper levels of love that we can move to in caring for one another. And that's the trajectory that Jesus points us to. And so our missional communities need to have radical love. And that radical love is displayed by not only getting together in smaller teams of people during the week and and teaching and praying, but how we live and serve one another through the course of life and those who maybe aren't a part of our even local oikos. I want to go to this verse in John. This verse, I believe, compelled them to be what they were in Acts. This is Jesus. And he would not just say it here in... uh, the John passage, but he would say it repeatedly different places as he was teaching. He says, a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you might think about loving one another. No, it says, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, here's my question with this passage from John. 13. What is new about this command? What's new about this command? You can go back in the Old Testament. You go back to the book of Leviticus and it, and it says uh, to love uh, one another. All right? But what's new about this command is actually the latter part where it says, As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Now, they had not seen Jesus go to the cross yet. That would be a great example for us, Right? Scripture teaches us in our marriages to love our spouse. You know, husband, love your wife as Christ loved the church. And they knew what that meant. He died for the church, right? You lay down your life for the church, right? So you lay down your life for one another. So they didn't quite have that example of Jesus dying on a cross yet. But what was in their minds when it says, as I have loved you? Well, right before this is Jesus washing the disciples' feet where he took his garments and he set his garments to the side, and then he began to do the job of the servants. Oh, you can't do this to me, Jesus. Let me do that. No, no. I am going to do this. Jesus humbled himself and placed himself in a position of servanthood to other people. And so when Jesus said this command, 
As I have loved you, so you must love one another. They had this image of their Savior in their mind. It wasn't somebody just standing up and giving these great oratorical messages about love. Talk is cheap, is it not, many times? But Jesus constantly demonstrated his love for people by how he positioned himself before them. If you want to do great things by doing small things with great love, ultimately, then you start by setting aside your garments, setting aside aside your pride many times, setting aside your agenda for that day, and serving people. That's what was in their mind. So when he said the power of the Holy Spirit will come on you and you'll be sent into all the world, they knew that the presence of Jesus was with them to fulfill this kind of command. And again, this wasn't a suggestion. This was a command for all believers at that time. It's a command for all of us at this time. Another part of that aspect of it being new was it was known uh, in Jewish culture that you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so when Jesus told them that all the law of the prophets can be summed up and love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, they said, yep, yep, got that, good, yep, got that. We know that one, Jesus. But then he tagged on the second portion of that where he said, and love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, I think that's buried somewhere back there in the Hebrew Scriptures. But Jesus brought that to the forefront that says, if you want to really say you're loving God, then you're loving your neighbor. These go hand in hand. They're one. And that was new. That was new. And so he was calling them into accountability with a command such as this. And then isn't it incredible? By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you preach really good. If you have all the answers for their skeptical questions. If you look the part. No, they will know you're my disciples if you love one another. Oh my goodness, can you believe that those people aren't running into the countryside? They're staying back here. They walked right in to that critical care unit and ended up dying themselves by taking care of those people. That's nuts. Where does that kind of care and love come from? Man, that must, that must come from God, if there is one. Slowly. Day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, the community of Christ became the most powerful apologetic for faith in Christ. That's just not normal what they're doing. But guess what? It may not be normal, it may be a little bit weird or maybe striking, but it's attractive. All of us internally are dear to people who give their life away that are not selfish. We're repelled by people that are self-centered and arrogant and, and cocky, right? Or people that are they're just out to pursue their own trajectory in life. Or maybe it's people that they're sort of giving their life away, but it's just to this small little group that's just their family, and that's okay. Nothing wrong with that. That's where it starts, right? But people that care beyond their arena for other people? This question was thrown out the other day. I was listening to something that says, if you saw your dog and a stranger in the pool drowning, who would you save first? It came in one-third, one-third, one-third. 
A third, I'd save my dog. A third said they'd save a stranger. And a third said they didn't know. Where's the love at, right? What is it in our life that we don't continually give ourselves away to other people? Now, part of it's I just it's just the human nature in the sense that it's hard to love hundreds and thousands of people, right? And so you get overwhelmed. Oh my goodness! And and I've told you, but I remember when I was in graduate school and I I was in a servants' quarters of a mansion down along the Hudson River, right next to the Tappan Zee uh, Bridge. And um, the mass of cars streaming across uh, that bridge going into New York City area for work, I was like, God, how do you love all those people? You know, and I got overwhelmed with it. But one of the things that he began to teach me early on was that I can't love people unless I'm deeply in love with him. And that I need to focus on my love for him. And then actively, day by day, choose to take that love and begin loving other people in a disposition, in a position of servanthood. And who knows what might happen from there. 1 Corinthians 13.13 says this, And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. You ever wonder why why is that the greatest of those? That's a pretty good list, right? Faith, hope, and love. Well, I tell you what, love will be the thing that lasts forever. That will be the stamp and the hallmark of eternity. For those of us who are Christ followers here, and we get to be assured of that destiny to be with Jesus and live with Him forever and do whatever kinds of other wacky plans He's got for the rest of eternity, uh, it will be a culture, it will be a community known by love. Because, see, faith, in many ways, will disappear. We have faith now because we haven't seen And yet we try to believe, right? We then have hope because we hope for a day when sin will be no more. When the lion will lay down with the lamb and there will be a beautiful new heaven and a new earth. That is a hope that we have. The hope for Jesus returning for us. But when we are there, faith and hope sort of begin to dissipate, though there will still be elements. But it's love that remains and is the greatest of all these things. And you would think, You would think, after all these years in our lives, all these years in church history, that we would get it right. But because of the sinful nature, we have to come back time and time again and remind ourselves what the gig's about is loving God and loving people. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Who is your neighbor? It's not necessarily just the person that drives in the garage next to you. It's whoever you're encountering that maybe as a person of peace, someone who's receptive to hearing you not just share the gospel, but live out the gospel before them. Now this passage, Faith, Hope, and Love, I find it interesting. If I can go to one of those little oikoses in the city of Thessalonica at the time. Thessalonica in 51 AD, there was a letter written to the Christians in Thessalonica by the Apostle Paul, probably with the help of Silas and Timothy, who were his traveling companions. And this was the first letter, possibly, that Paul actually wrote. He had been in Thessalonica, which was a city of 200,000 people. And when he planted an oikos there, an oikos emerged that he visited that then began to flourish. It was a very young church plant that just took off rapidly in Thessalonica. 
And as this church plant started to take off rapidly, some, proper, some problems started to arise as it related to opposition against Paul and his leadership. And so they told Paul, you need to get out of town or you're going to you're sort of be in trouble here. So he says, all right, you guys take care of this and this. And he headed out. He headed to a place called Berea and he was going to go on to Athens. Timothy was there with him in Athens. And he said, Timothy, I want you to go back into Thessalonica. Make sure they're doing okay there. He says, I'm going to go on to Corinth. Meet up with me in Corinth. And the reason I share all this with you and you because a lot of times we just think that the scriptures and those churches and those letters just appeared. But they had real history just like you and I had real real history that we're creating now. All right? We celebrate next uh, Sunday the 10-year run of this church. Right? And we didn't have a Paul that showed up. We had a Dave and Elena Reynolds that showed up and they started this church. And they're going to be with us next Sunday, by the way. Looking forward to sharing with them and what God's doing, the trajectory of their future. And they're looking forward to being with us next week. But, you know, we have history as a church plant. But here's this church at Thessalonica. And they had history too. The letter just didn't appear. And it was really a, a letter of good commendation. You guys are doing a good job. And this is what it says in the first part of Thessalonica, Thessalonians to the Christians there in Thessalonica. Paul says, We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's start right there. Now, do you think he just came up with those three words? I think those three words have been spoken to him time and again uh, through the Christian communities he's around who pick them up from the Lord and Savior. And the idea that, you know, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest is they're lived out there. Work produced by faith. The word work there has to do with the substance of what is the result. So look at this result because of your faith. Your labor prompted by love. The word labor there doesn't really refer to work as it relates to the end product. It refers to the, the burden, the pain, the suffering of getting there. All right? And then your endurance inspired by hope, knowing what your destiny was. Now, this was 51 A.D., right? I shared with you about the Roman Empire. The epidemic was in 165 A.D. and lasted for 15 years. Then a century later was another epidemic, and those Christians continued to do what? The very same thing that was modeled for them centuries before. It was the steadfast, consistent identity. There were not big church buildings before the 380 seasons. All right? What there were were household oikoses, and they would gather in the temple courts, yes, or a synagogue or some other public area. They had the large gathering. There's nothing wrong with a big bonfire, right? But it was predominantly through these households, and these households were producing work by faith, labor prompted by love, and endurance inspired by the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it goes on to say this. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. So it wasn't just a gospel that was handed out to them and said, well, here's, here's the story, here's the news. It came to them through the power of the Holy Spirit upon their lives, because Jesus now dwelt within them, 
And the power of the Holy Spirit was enabling them to do the ministry that Christ himself would have done. Greater things than these will you do if I go to the Father. They didn't understand what that meant. But Jesus left. He sent his Spirit. Then the Spirit sends them back out. So Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is working through this community in Thessalonica to do these acts of love, to communicate the good news, to declare redemption through repentance and forgiveness and and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know how we lived among you for your sake. Now, what do you think about that? Do you think that they lived among them, Paul and Timothy and Silas, as people of notoriety, of importance? It's actually very early on in Paul's uh, journey, uh, and probably he didn't have much notoriety at all. But he lived among them as one who was a servant giving his life away. He didn't even, like, receive offerings. I mean... For himself, he was a tent maker as he went from place to place, right? He served and loved them, modeling Christ. Verse 6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so, you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and um, AKI. Now listen, this pattern of loving and giving life away was being handed down. At that time, not just generation to generation, but being handed down from one oikos to another oikos. And then it says this, Thessalonica is in Macedonia, the largest city there at that time. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Now, I like the word rang out there. Gong, gong. Do you realize that those small little things that you do, they may not be some big banging bell in your whole neighborhood or your workplace, but to those people you are serving, it is ringing to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then you get the opportunity to step in as they would have and begin to share the message along with the ministry. If we want to be a church who rocks the valley for Jesus Christ, then we must be a church with households of deep conviction about loving one another. There is no other way to do that. We can raise up a large number of people for an event. That won't take too much. Honestly, you just bring in somebody that everybody wants to see or bring in some rock and band that somebody ever wants to see. But to really impact long term, there is a need for us to develop these households, these oikos, these communities, these missional communities that love people where they're at. And through that, it will ring throughout this valley that Jesus is Lord, as we add the words to it. One more verse here, Romans 5, 5. This is where our hope is in this. Paul says, God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. This is my challenge. You set out to pursue passionate spirituality, like we talked about last week, to know Jesus I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of sharing His sufferings. Remember last week if you were here? 
that passionate spirituality to know Jesus. As you begin to know Jesus, His Spirit is then poured out through your heart into your life to love other people. Friends, you and I will grow weary real quick if we're merely loving people out of our own human initiative or human efforts. We have to have a supernatural dynamic happening where we are loving because we are loving Christ and His life is poured through us to other people. It's a dynamic state. You've got the vertical dimension and you've got the horizontal dimension. And I've seen people fall off the bandwagon and quit. People even quit going to church because they have tried to love and care for other people. But somehow they were not encouraged. They were not in a community or a larger worship gathering, whatever it may be, where their vertical dimension of a radical spirituality kept them fueled to do the radical horizontal loving. It's a two-way dynamic. As we love Christ, His Holy Spirit's love is poured through us to love other people. That's why in my early days, Jesus says, don't you worry about the breadth of your ministry. You just worry about the depth. And so you focus on the depth of your love for Christ and your willingness to love others and to be tangibly there for them in their life. And He will take care of the breadth. And even if the breadth is not visibly big to a world around you or even your friends before the heavens above, small things done with great love have a long-term impact, even if it's just one or two people that you fully are able to invest in in your life. This is our hope. That God has poured out His Spirit into our hearts. And it's the Spirit of Himself loving and caring for one another. There is a hunger for community. And the hunger for community is to know and be known, to love and be loved, to serve and be served, and to celebrate and be celebrated. Take the opportunity to know one another. Take the opportunity to love tangibly, many times through serving and even being served, letting it be a mutual thing. Celebrate and be celebrated is just mere encouragement. All of us long for these type of things to be a part of our weekly, monthly lifetime. Because we are made in the image of God, and being made in the image of God means that we are relational beings. I have one story and then a verse to close with at this part before we go to worship. There's a story told, true story, by a guy by the name of Jim Roberts. He had a son, 10-year-old son, 4th grade, by the name of Daniel. And he was helping out their school uh, this one particular day, and they were doing a game with the kids. It was called Balloon Stomp. You ever play that game? And so they brought in a room full of fourth graders and they tied balloons to their legs. And the goal of the game is to stomp on other people's balloons and see who the last man or the last woman is that's standing. It's sort of a, a Darwin kind of game. I mean, they, it's like dog eat dog. And then so they tie the balloons and they say to the kids, you know, Go! And then so they start to take off, and you got the really aggressive kind of guys going around, trying to stamp on everything they can find, right? 
Then you got the people that are pulling back and trying to protect themselves. So they, they scoot to the outside walls and try to hide their balloon, you know. And so the game's going on and different balloons are getting stomped and one kid decides to pull out and, and he trades his balloon in for an extra carton of milk or something like that. So you get all this gaming going on and, and finally it's down to it's down to just a few of them and there's a stomp there and a stomp there and a stomp there and they're bumping and hitting one another and finally the, the next to the last person's balloon is stomped and we have a... Winner! And when you have a winner, and you're not the winner, that means you're the loser! So there's one winner, everybody else loses. Alright! Next class comes in. Dad's watching this. And he's going, oh no. This isn't going to be good. They... uh they circumvent the, the explanation a lot on what to do, and they tie the balloons on, but this is a class of special needs kids. And he's going like this, isn't going to turn out well. What are these kids going to do? Well, they get the balloons tied. Like I said, they didn't explain the game well. And they said, go! And um, the mentally and physically handicapped kids were looking around at one another, and they didn't quite know what to do. But word started to trickle down that, that balloons needed to be popped. And so what they did was um, one girl starts to say, well, here, here, try to pop mine. And so she holds it down, you know, like a place kicker while the other kid pops it. And, and then they stand up and cheer each other, hug each other. And then he, he pulls down and he, he holds his balloon down so she can pop it. And before you know it, they're all helping each other get all the balloons popped. And then guess what? They all cheered because they all won. It was the team win. Now here, here's the question. Who got the game right? The first class or the second class? You see, we live in a culture that says, one winner, let's go after competition, beat up on everybody else. The special needs class. They were in community. They're helping one another. They're encouraging one another. Our world would teach you to do one thing. It will teach you to exclude other people. To be consumers. To be competitors. Be consumed with keeping your own balloon. But the kingdom of God says we're all in this together. And it's not the way of exclusion. It's the way of embrace. We, if we declare to be followers of Jesus, are not a people of exclusion and competition. We are a people of embrace and radical community. This verse... I close with Hebrews 10:23 Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. We have to prioritize, I believe in our life, radical community. As we're out on the highways and the byways of life, yes, but also 
in coming together and not neglecting the meeting one with another. Because that's how we spur one another on to habits of doing good, to loving others as Christ loved us. Many of you in the last couple of weeks have marked the back of your communication card that says, I'm in for a missional community. I'm working through those. I got currently 73 people that marked that. Part of me says that's enough for now because I'm not quite sure how all that gets navigated and people brought together in communities. But you know, it's not enough. A hundred percent. Being connected, and it may not be connected with a missional community through Chorus Church, but you need to be connected with a community of people, friends, family, whatever it is, that keep you spurred on to doing doing the Jesus thing of loving Him. Yes. Passionate spirituality is a part of our missional communities. But spurring one another on to love other people in a tangible way. Because left to ourselves in our busy schedules, in our weary bodies, especially those of us that are getting older, we will move into isolation, into our own little silos. We will not engage in community. But God has called you into community. He's called you into gatherings, not for the sake of just, hey, it's us and no more, but for the sake of being there for other people. If you'd still like to get in, just put MC on the back of your communication card. I'll add you to the list. And we'll work with how we can get you connected with a community of people that can be on mission, radically loving one another. And then my final challenge is this. I believe this ability for us to love one another begins by being willing to pray for one another. And I want to challenge you who are in small groups or if you're in a community, maybe you have a Bible study even at work or something like that, to take at least a small portion of your time as you meet together to pray for people that are not in your room or not in your circle, that are not close to the, the little uh, fire that we've got going. Pray for people to know Christ. Not only in message, but through ministry. In fact, some of you that are in groups, I encourage you to consider doing prayer walks. You ever done a prayer walk? You can do it by yourself. You can do it with your spouse. You can do it with your small group community. Just say, we're going to take the last half of our community and we're going to hit our neighborhood. Which just break up four or five uh, different groups of people going different ways. Just praying. You don't have to go outside the house and go, Oh God, for this house we pray for this house. You're saying, Lord, what is it about this home, this need, or whatever it is? I pray for this home. What we're doing in that is beginning to turn ourselves inside out. So we're thinking about loving others and not just taking care of our own needs. And they're important needs as we love on one another. But I want to encourage you to prioritize time to be in community. And I want you to prioritize time for praying for people outside your circle. Let's just start with that, at least for this week. Sound good? Chris and team, would you come up? And we're going to enter back into just spending a time of worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm mindful as they come up that there are prayer needs within this body. And so I would like us to pray together as a body before we step back into worship and receive the Lord's tithes and offerings as well as the communication cards. But... Um,
in this time of prayer, I'm just going to ask everybody to bow their heads and close their eyes. If you are a particular person in need of prayer because of an issue or something going on in your life, or maybe even this exhortation to be less self-centered, less uh, exclusivistic and more embracing, and you would like to have prayer for your particular need, I'm just going to ask you to stand where you're at. not going to do anything weird. just going to have you stand acknowledge before the Lord that you carry in today a burden, a prayer burden in your life or for a friend, for a neighbor. And the Lord sees not only your stance before Him, but He knows deeply the need behind it. Anyone else? You're just acknowledging that you're bringing the need and sometimes, yeah, it's a little awkward, but something just as simple as standing would be a first step to say, no longer in hiddenness, I need to bring this to the community before the Savior. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we are so grateful that you pour out your love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom you've given us. And Lord, if we are a Christ follower of yours today, I pray that you would pour out even a greater portion of your blessing, of your love into our lives, to love other people. But Lord, in this moment, we pray for those who are standing, that you would touch the need that they have, to encourage them. Lord, you know the specifics. Lord, you also know the wisdom that's needed power that's needed to bring about maybe an answer that radically glorifies you. So Lord, for those who are standing, we pray for them. We pray your anointing and your blessing upon their life. May you pour out your love into their hearts. And Lord, may this particular need, whether it be a health need, a financial need, whether it's prayer for a lost loved one or someone that's even a, uh, maybe a bit of a stranger today, an acquaintance, somebody at work, somebody um, in a recreational league, Lord, somebody that's uh, down the street. Lord, whatever the need is that's represented here, we know that in your throne room, you can work powerfully and make decisions and act in a way that's even beyond us to bring about your glory through the reconciliation that's needed the transformation that's needed. Lord, may you minister your grace through your Holy Spirit into the each and every need that is represented by those who are standing here. Jesus, we love you. We honor you with our life. Lord, show us how to have radical community by doing small things with great love. May we not exclude people, but may we embrace people. And may we journey into the future as a church fully alive on a Sunday morning, but fully alive during the week as we are your hands and your feet. Jesus, teach us. We're in this for the long haul. We have much to learn in your name. Let's all stand together and sing. As you feel led in this worship block, to just worship the Savior.